Hello there, my name is Paul Kearney and I'm a Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling, which is in Scotland in the UK. Uh, this is the first of a series of short podcasts on a new book and a webpage called The Politics of Policy Analysis. Uh, as you can tell, I'm a little bit self-conscious because uh, no one leaves the house anymore, so I'm recording this with people here. You'll probably hear my Sun in the kitchen, for example. So, uh, if I sound like I'm kind of whispering conspiratorial into the microphone, that's what it is. Uh, in this sort of preface to the series, I want to just give you a sense of the, the rationale and the story of the book. Uh, and it began, uh, I teach a, a master's in public policy, which is a one-year postgraduate programme. And there are two core modules, and they both pretty much focus on policy process concepts and theories, because I, I have this kind of strong, stubborn belief that the study of policy analysis is not particularly useful unless you have a clear sense of, of, of you know, the context for that analysis, which is, you know, policy and policy making. So I tended to focus much more on those modules on introducing concepts and really leaving students to work out for themselves how to do policy analysis. So I would say, you know, read Bardak and one or two others and, and off you go. Now, increasingly, that proved to be not a great idea, not very sensible. And one, um, you know, very useful student asked this, you know, useful question, you know, what is policy analysis? You know, or, I mean, put another way, why don't you tell us what policy analysis is and before you get us to do a policy analysis project and reflect on it? Now, for me, uh, that was understandable because my gut is that the best part of this module is the reflection on why you do policy analysis in a particular way, given what you know about policy making, policymaker psychology, that sort of thing. But I thought, fair enough, I should at some point focus on what policy analysis is. So I set up a, a page that had a series of blog posts which were there to summarise policy analysis texts. You know, so the classic is Bardak's Eight Steps, but there are about half a dozen other texts that I've summarised on the site. And each time what I've done is I've summarised what they've said and, you know, summarised their advice if you're doing policy analysis. And then I've tried to relate that to the bigger policy making picture. Then increasingly it made sense to engage or summarise some of the more critical accounts, you know, critical policy analysis or critical social science that engages with that advice and identifies big problems with it. So on the site you'll see that I've expanded the field beyond that, to see what else is relevant, even when it does not describe policy analysis. So, for example, some of it is on the politics of knowledge and what counts as useful knowledge. And, you know, knowledge is the thing that feeds most into policy analysis. So we really should pay attention to what counts as policy-relevant knowledge and analysis. So the book ended up as a sort of notional three-way conversation between policy analysis texts, policy process studies, and critical policy analysis. Although, you know, I say a conversation, but it's just me talking to me, talking to me. Okay, but you get the idea. Then I wrote this up, this stuff up in the book. So as described, you can see I have not written a new how to do policy analysis text. I have written uh, a companion to one or more of those texts. So think of it more like, you know, an, an annoying brother of more successful books. You know, you can't get by on this book alone 
But there is some merit to someone standing next to someone successful, you know, telling them uh, what's wrong with them. Okay. Now, the, po the podcasts follow the book format. Uh, so essentially, if you have the book, you can listen to podcasts as a kind of self-reinforcement or something like that. But I am confident that you can use the blog and the podcasts as an alternative to buying the book. This is not a hard sell. And in fact, I wrote the podcasts, I wrote the posts first, thinking that this would be a, a site. And if you look closely, you'll see some things are hidden in plain sight there. The second thing is there'll also be a lot more blog posts summarising more key texts after the book's published. So the website will eventually become much bigger, much more expansive than the book itself. So the book is really there just to provide you with like a core sense of what's going on and an encouragement to read the original sources and to read much wider beyond those sources. Okay, so thank you. In the next post, I'll, I'll sort of summarise the introduction and take it from there. Hello, my name is Paul Kearney and I am a professor of politics and public policy at University of Stirling. Almost forgot my name there. This is chapter one, uh, introduction, and it's called New Policy Analysis for the Real World. Now that's largely because I wanted to put that in there somewhere, uh, because there's a kind of classic book when I was an undergraduate and someone I worked for for a while, uh, it was called Policy Analysis for the Real World. Okay, and it always seemed like they've got the the best title. Okay, so the introduction briefly describes what the aim of the book is, uh, and it starts by saying, you know, uh, you know, trying to define policy analysis. And I think it's no more than the identification of a policy problem and of policy solutions. You know, I think it's one of the easiest things to sum up. I mean, it's hard to go from there, but that's pretty much what it is. You're trying to you're trying to identify. What policy problems exist and what you can do about them. Often for a client, you know, the classic texts talk about, you know, uh, solve problems for your client. Now, as described, it is both descriptive and prescriptive. We're using research and empirical information for normative purposes. Now, there are classic texts uh, that I'll talk about throughout the course, and there are classic methods like cost-benefit analysis. However, part of the point of the book is that new texts in the study of policy analysts suggest that they're describing something new. And that is sort of two main elements. The first is there's a new policy making environment. So studies of policy analysts suggest that the, their number, their role, the, their required skills and their status has changed profoundly over several decades. Now, a lot of this novelty is captured by studies of policy making, as in policy process, theses and concepts. And ideally, we should follow Laswell's famous aim to combine policy analysis and policy making research, otherwise described as the analysis for policy informed by the analysis of policy. However, you know, if you study this for any length of time, you'll see there's quite a gulf between those two concerns. You often study those in different books or different modules. And you can you can go through your life as a policy analysis, not reading policy theories or studying policy theories without really being engaged in the kind of practical normative side of policy making. So there's a lot more work to be done to help students of policy analysis with a practical focus learn from policy making research, which is theoretical and empirical with a potential practical focus. Uh, 
So the first purpose of the book is to explore how to incorporate policy theory insights in a straightforward way, focusing on two main elements. The first I would call policymaking psychology. So there's a simple insight that people combine cognition and emotion to understand information. So we have to incorporate that in the way we communicate policy analysis. The second is policymaking complexity. So policymakers operate in an environment over which no one has full knowledge or control. So we have to incorporate the sense that we can't just say, do this because we want it to happen. We really have to tie what we want them to do to an analysis of what they actually do in a policy process. What are their, what is their capacity and what are their limits? Now, the second aspect of the book is a new focus on the normative role. So traditionally, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of um, providing some kind of caricature here a little bit, but policy analysis is, is described almost as a noble technocratic way to aid policy. You know, use policy analysis methods to help policymakers enhance human dignity, which sounds excellent. But now there's much more of a focus on well-established but often ignored work on the con you know, contestation and the politics of knowledge production. So the second purpose of the book is to explore how to incorporate insights from studies of power, co-production, feminism, racism and decolonization to reconsider what is good policy analysis and what makes policy relevant knowledge. Now, I won't claim to be an expert or speaking on behalf of those texts, but I would like to introduce them to you and to show you how relevant they are to policy analysis, even when they, they never really engage with policy analysis texts. And I think the main take home message is that if you see people describing policy analysis as a largely technical exercise done by you know, objective or you know, dispassionate people, that itself is an exercise of power to downplay the politics of knowledge production and use. And the alternative is to reflect on whose policy relevant knowledge counts and whose knowledge should count. Okay, so in terms of the structure of the book, I've, I've divided it into two parts. Part one is a notional conversation between policy analysis texts, policy theories and critical policy analysis. And it's five main parts then. So first we'll get into what's the classic five-step model of how to do policy analysis. Then we ask you what has changed and why do we need new policy analysis? In particular, what insights from policy process research do analysts need to learn? And then what in insights from wider studies of power, knowledge, politics and, and policy do policy analysis needs to consider? And then finally, in that section, I'll ask, you know, how have these policy analysis texts incorporated these insights so far? You know, so particularly the new editions of the new text, they actually engage very heavily with these kinds of issues, you know, so I'm not, I'm not describing them as somehow deficient in that sense. Part two goes further, uh, uses this foundation to explore a series of themes relevant to doing policy analysis and reflecting on that process. Okay, so... The first one is comparing what you need as a policy analyst with policy making reality. Now, I would say that most five-step guides, they relate mostly to what analysts need to do. Uh, so let's call those functional requirements. This is what they need to do and what they require of policy making. Now, that's very different from the study of actual policy making. You know, what you need is often not what you can do. So that's where policy concepts and theories are handy because they, they identify bounded rationality, the limits to the processing of information 
and the limits to the understanding and control of, of policymakers within policy processes. And then that, that section or chapter asks us to reflect on, you know, uh, if you take these insights seriously, you know, there is not one single all-powerful centre processing all information. And who actually are you speaking to? Who's your audience when you define problems and propose solutions? And what can you realistically expect them to do with your solutions? The next section is about who should be involved. Um, so if we can reconsider that idea, that policy analysis is a political act to decide who should be involved in the policy process and whose knowledge counts. So I identify this kind of notional distinction between two different stories or visions of policy analysis. One is often called evidence-based policymaking, which I think requires a focus on a relatively small group of experts providing research directly to policymakers and prioritising that research and policy choices. The second story is a more co-produced exercise which focuses much more on deliberation and widespread inclusion from people who are stakeholders or participants, service users or, or, or just anyone who's who is affected by policy or has something to say that would help shape it. And those are two very different concerns and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but it's worth spending some time thinking about what we think policy analysis is and who should be involved and who should not. But that informs the next section, which is what is your role as a policy analyst? And there's a series of questions there on, on what to reflect. You know, who should decide how to frame and solve policy problems? How pragmatic should you be when you propose policy change in a complex system? And to what extent is your success of your analysis dependent on producing new information and advice or generating inclusion among a large group of people, rather than just focusing on, on outcomes? And this section identifies a, a series of different policy analysis archetypes, but really groups them into two different approaches. One is the classic pragmatic, professional, client-oriented policy analyst that sees it as art and craft and the art of the possible and, and is you know, uh, relatively conservative or realistic, however you want to describe it. And the second uh, I would describe as the, a more questioning, storytelling, decolonizing analyst that challenges or seeks to challenge um, inequalities of power and seeks to use policy-relevant knowledge and policy analysis to to change things, okay, so to not be pragmatic or to reject, you know, that kind of false sense of realism. We then move on to uh, this idea of a policy entrepreneur. So that, that's quite a popular notion in policy studies and in, in, in policy analysis, the, the idea that you can identify exceptional individuals who have you know, the tenacity and knowledge and skills and networks to make major changes and so Michael Mintram is a great exponent of that kind of study and he identifies, you know, the attributes, skills and strategies for entrepreneurships. But really, I think a lot of the study of policymaking suggests that most policy actors like entrepreneurs fail. You know, we tend to focus on the successful ones, but you know, if you look at everyone, most people are not having that success. And then I would say it's their environments that explain their success more than their strategies. So that, you know, lots of different people could, could use exactly the same strategy, but fail in, in different environments. And relatively few, few people have 
the power or the opportunity to become entrepreneurs. So we can talk about that in terms of, you know, the wider question of inequalities of power within policy analysis. Then one of my favourite topics, policy analysis as systems thinking. Now, again, that is another popular term uh, which can be useful to policy analysis, you know, you know, which is just essentially saying, you know, let's not be too narrow-minded or um, reductive about policy analysis. Let's think of it as a system and what we how, how everything connects to each other. Now, the only, well, there are a couple of problems that I talk about. One is that if you try and pin down what people mean by system thinking, it's very difficult. And, uh, you know, just to be a little bit facetious, in that chapter I've come up with 11 different meanings that people uh, use and to, to compare them. And just to show you that, the term system thinking is not particularly useful unless you uh, find out what it means. And the other problem is that some people are talking about using it to change the world. Other people are using it to say that individuals have a minimal impact on complex systems. So systems thinking, because it can essentially be you can have a maximal impact or you will have a minimal impact. So we really need to sort out what people mean here. So finally then, uh, the final section asks how much impact you can expect from your analysis and how far you would go to secure it. And I go into a little bit uh, the relationship between studies of policy analysis and studies of academic impact. Uh, so I think the difference is policy analysis, I think, expect more of an impact than academic researchers do. And maybe they would be willing to go much further than academics to, to get what they want. So just to explore that kind of thing and introduce what we call a ladder of ethical engagement. And as a series of steps that you can ask yourself about how far you're willing to go to engage in politics and policy making to, to get what you want from policy analysis. Okay, so overall, the book then helps us reflect on you know what can the study of policy analysis tell us about policy making and what can studies of policy making tell budding policy analysts about the nature of their task and how it relates to their policy making environment. You may as well go into this with your eyes wide open rather than being too, you know, having too high expectations. And then it reflects a little bit on, on what is an ethical approach to policy analysis and the pursuit of human dignity, given that there are high levels of inequalities and marginalisation in political systems and policy analysts have high potential to reinforce those inequalities rather than help solve them. Okay, thank you. Hello, my name is Paul Kearney and I am a Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. And this is Chapter 2, What is the Classic Five-Step Model of How to Do Policy Analysis? The first thing to say is that, you know, if you're talking about the classic models of policy analysis, they all tend to be client-oriented. They're for someone in particular and, the, you know, that has implications for how to do it. Most of them are... Uh, done before the event, ex ante, and they focus primarily on defining a problem and predicting the effect of solutions to inform a client's choice. Now, each text describes this process in different ways, and you know I've given you uh, boxes one to five to show you how each author does it in slightly different ways. And there's an element, I think, of the old um, seven-minute abs joke, you know, the, the best way to undercut an eight-minute abs video is to promise the best, you know, the same results in seven minutes. Uh, but um, I think 
we can solve that problem by really just treating them all as, you know, kind of in, in one way or another as five-step policy analysis. So they follow the following five steps. Uh, first is define a policy problem identified by your client. The second is identify technically and politically feasible solutions to that problem. The third is use value-based criteria and political goals to compare solutions. Then four is predict the outcome of each feasible solution. And five is make a recommendation to your client. So all of these texts uh, more or less emphasize the need to be pragmatic, to adapt pragmatically to a political environment out of your control and to assume that your audience is not an experienced policy analysis or technocrat and that you have to you know, produce something simple and, and uh, well, not simple, you know, short and punchy for someone that's pretty busy and doesn't have the same amount of time to work on it as you do. They also suggest you assume a political environment in which there's limited attention or time to consider problems and lots of solutions will be infeasible. Um, you know, they prompt you to describe the policy problem for your audience to help them see it as something worthy of their energy, you know, even if the client has raised it in the first place. They talk about describing a small or manageable number of solutions, uh, the differences between them and their respective costs and benefits. And they tend to suggest to keep it short with the aid of uh, your visual techniques or, or just with a small number of words to sum up the issue concisely and to minimise cognitive load. Okay, and I think the idea of cognitive load has become quite um, popular now, uh, which is really the sense that you know, people are only willing and able to pay attention to a certain amount of information. If you, if you overload them, you, it's counterproductive. So on that basis, the chapter explores a series of common themes, which we can summarise as follows. So the first is most policy analysis is client-oriented, and that has um, big implications for what you can do. This is not about you, this is about them. Okay, so the, the text talk about you know, meet their deadline and be concise see problems and solutions through their eyes and try and identify and work with their beliefs. So in other words, there's no point in telling them what you want to do if it is remarkably inconsistent with what they're willing to do. So that feeds into the next point, which is that problem definition has a, you know, has a technical element, but it's always about power and politics. So to some extent, you can define problems in a, you know, using technical exercises or methods uh, with uh, you know, limited resources. And you know, there's an emphasis on problem definition in which you analyze the ga analysts gather sufficient data on its severity, urgency, cause, and their ability to solve it. But really, problem definition is a political process involving people exercising power through argumentation to make sure that policymakers see a problem from a particular perspective. I'll probably say this a few times, but there's a useful distinction between uncertainty and ambiguity. You know, uncertainty is a lack of knowledge or confidence in your knowledge about something. So you can address that with more information. Ambiguity is a lack of agreement on what a policy problem is. And you address that through argumentation and power. You know, try and get people to define a problem through your eyes rather than theirs. Okay, so policy analysts, you know, in that context, they're not objective observers of this process. They're political actors. And their analysis is part of a narrative to evaluate the nature, cause, size, and urgency of an issue. Okay, so that leads to the next theme, which is that, you know, policy solutions or instruments can be technically feasible, but 
politically infeasible or vice versa. Now, technical feasibility really just means they will work as intended if implemented, whereas political feasibility is about are they popular enough amongst key people to be acceptable and accepted. And some solutions may appear technically you know, feasible but too unpopular. And political feasibility can relate strongly to the status quo, which is often quite comforting, or you know, already uh, produced by powerful people or, or in negotiation. And it relates to uh, the extent to which a new policy looks like it represents you know, major radical change, which is often off-putting to some people. So analysis is largely about realistic policy change in a particular context. It's not about you know, a blank slate. Okay, the next theme is use political goals and value judgments to compare alternatives. So there, there are kind of common measures that each of the texts talk about to combine political goals like, you know, uh, you focus on making sure that the, the government or policymakers remain popular or seen as legitimate with these other values. So they include things like efficiency, equity and fairness, uh, a trade-off between individual freedom and, you know, collective or state action, uh, the extent to which a policy process involves citizens in deliberation and the focus on things like, you know, human dignity and policy uh, sustainability. There's some values, there are many of them around, but some values tend to dominate, you know, so such as efficiency, and that's often a very powerful uh, value to, to apply to a, a policy because, you know, it, um, you, lots of governments don't want to raise taxes and if they want to introduce something new, they want it to not be too expensive. There's also a very strong focus on methods such as cost-benefit analysis, which is really about trying to break uh, the cost and benefits of any action into uh, you know, the same unit of analysis so that you can compare things in a straightforward way. So I should say that this book does not really explain cost-benefit analysis in great depth, and it certainly doesn't tell you how to do it. But um, you know, if you're interested in other other textbooks, Weimar and Vining does. I think it's got about two hundred pages on on you know the economics underpinning cost benefit analysis in a, in a way that you know I couldn't possibly. So the next theme is be efficient and pragmatic when gathering evidence. So some of these texts are more ambitious than others about how much original research they want you to do. But most are describing desktop exercises, and they're certainly not describing you know a notion of evidence based policymaking, which you're doing a, a systematic review of all the evidence out there. You know, this is about uh, being timely rather than being comprehensive. Then there's a great focus on communicating clearly and concisely. So the, there are books that, that go into that in, in some detail. So there's a kind of 2015 Smith book that has these checklists to assess communication. So one of them is focusing on Effectiveness, which is, you know, identify a particular audience, highlight a well-defined problem and purpose, project authority and use the right kind of communication for your audience. And then this, this idea of excellence, which is about clarity, precision, conciseness, credibility and such, way, such like. So a lot of policy analysis advice is actually about the kind of skill or craft of actually writing or producing these kind of analyses in a way that you know, people will pay attention to. Then there's some focus on communicating risk and uncertainty in a responsible and ethical way. So I would say a lot of this is about being a competent consumer of information. So analysts should be well skilled in how to understand, gather a lot of information. And then it's about being a responsible communicator. And the book gives you a kind of list 
that comes out of uh, Spiegelhalter's book, which is a list of things that you can do well or badly to communicate information and risk well or badly. Now, I think the, what they, those kind of books don't say in, enough, I think, is that I would assume that it's the communication of evidence is more influential than who's producing it. You know, people produce the evidence and there are experts, but analysts are often the ones who are summarizing, communicating, making sense and telling a story about that evidence. So that puts the onus on being responsible and ethical on those policy analysis. Okay, so to sum up this section then, uh, you know, you would say there are lots of different ways to describe the steps to policy analysis, but they are fairly clear themes. This is focus on your clients, be pragmatic, uh, produce efficient uh, analyses of information, you know, produce short, clear, concise analyses and, and focus on what is politically feasible as well as technically feasible. And that's all fair enough. You know, those are really useful texts and, and, and um, you know, those are the kinds of things that would help people when they engage with this um, exercise for the first time. But really the, the conclusion to this one is about what is missing from these how-to guides. And the next three chapters explore what is missing and particularly what can be filled with more studies of policy theories, which tell you about the context in which this stuff takes place, and more studies of critical policy analysis, which makes us think about, you know, what is the, the role of policy analysis in a political system that has uh, contains high inequalities and marginalises uh, many different groups. Okay, thank you. Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling in Scotland in the UK. And this is Chapter 3, What has changed and why do we need new policy analysis? So this is really uh, a story of, or two stories really, of old and new policy analysis. So story one is, you know, suggests that in the olden days, the old ways of making policy were relatively centralised, exclusive and focused on problem solving. So there are key elements of that story. Uh, analysis took place in an environment that resembled a club uh, in which there was a powerful centre or a clear sense of government hierarchy. And in that context, there was a small number of analysts. They existed generally inside government. You know, there were senior bureaucrats or economists or scientific experts. They gave technical or factual advice. They focused on policy formulation. Their audience was policymakers at the heart of government. And the assumption is that uh, policy problems would be solved via analysis and action. Now that is a caricature, but a useful caricature nonetheless, that helps us try to understand uh, how to describe modern policy analysis, which is much more open, politicized, and, and the focus is less certain. Okay, so now, there are many policy analysis analysts inside and outside of government. They compete with each other and other actors to interpret facts, find an audience and give advice. And advice can be about uh, agenda setting, making policy, delivering or evaluating policy. And that competition extends across many policy making venues because there's not one single or powerful centre of government. Plus, governments have a limited ability to understand and solve the policy problems described in policy analyses. There's, you know, gone is the, the old idea that governments exist to actually solve problems. 
there's table one goes into that in a little bit more depth by giving us a comparison between your so-called rational policy analysis and analysis in the, the real world. So categories include the number of actors, you know, so with the rational, you know, the old story, you have a centralised process with few actors. Now there's a messy process with many policymakers and influencers inside and outside of government. The role of knowledge has changed, or, or at least the story of knowledge, you know, it was about translating science into policy. Now it's about a competition to frame issues and assess, you know, what counts as policy relevant knowledge. The discussion of solutions has changed, you know, from the story of an optimal solution from one perspective towards a negotiated or, you know, a dominant solution based on many perspectives. And optimality is contested. And then there's this focus on relevant skills. So the old focus was on how to analyze a problem and solution with uh, one metric or one method, like cost-benefit analysis. Now there's this focus on many different skills about you know being uh, effective within a political process. So stakeholder analysis, managing networks, collaborating, mediation, conflict resolution, and so on. So Radin describes this increasingly fluid client-analyst relationship. So first, it's it's quite difficult to identify who the client is in many respects. Second, it's relatively difficult to, to identify who exactly is an analyst and, and where, where they're positioned. And third, I mean, this is the big one, the required skills of analysts and the image of analysts has changed considerably. So her story is of the, the US. But wider comparative studies of you know places like uh, Europe, Western Europe find a, a similar thing: high uncertainty, high complexity, and high variation in the role and impact of analysts. So people started to talk now about seeing policy analysis as a collection of styles or activities rather than one approach. So there's uh, you know this chapter by Meyer that discuss which suggests that analysts could combine one or more of six activities. You know, so they're talking about research and analysing things, they're talking about design and recommendations, talking about clarifying values and arguments, giving strategic advice, working out how to democratise the process and focusing on mediation between many different types of stakeholders. And then they talk about six different styles of analysis that might vary according to what analysts thinks they're doing and what their attitude is to a wider political process. So. One style is a kind of traditional rational way to do it, you know, just about gathering information using a series of steps. The other is more argumentative, focusing on persuasion. Uh, one focuses on client advice, or you can have styles about participation, interactivity, and so on. Okay, so in terms of the impl implications for policy analysis and professional development, so Raiden produces this remarkably large list of relevant skills and a list of questions analysts might ask themselves. I'm sure it goes on to several pages. But really the point is that this is no longer about producing a document that if picked up will inevitably lead to policy change. This is about thinking about what else policy analysts need to do to get attention and to, to be successful. So that's um, generating an understanding of policymaking organisations and processes, you know, working out where the action is across political systems, mapping stakeholders and who is powerful, uh, managing networks of people who make policy and people who influence it, um, trying to incorporate many perspectives and 
and focusing on delivery. Now, it may not be that you know you could expect individuals to do all those things, but I think the point is that there is such a wide range of roles and skills required of analysts that we're giving up on this idea that it's all done by this small number of people at the heart of government. Now, the conclusion is that um, this not only changes the way we should think about five-step policy analysis, but it also shows this link between the analysis of policy and for policy. You know, so in other words, how can you know how to do policy analysis without knowing about the status of analysts within a complex policymaking process? So in the next chapter, we'll get into what we need to know about that process. Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I am a professor of politics and public policy at the University of Stirling. And this is chapter four. What insights from policy process research do policy analysts need to know? Okay. Now, this podcast here is mostly introductory and scratching the surface. Now, that's largely because I've recorded a whole bunch of other podcasts in other series. And on the website, they're called 500 words or 1,000 words. The 1,000 words posts have a short podcast for a day concept there. The 500 words page has longer lectures that I recorded for the MPP that I teach. So you'll find much more in-depth discussion of, uh, you know, what are what we'll call two foundational ideal types used to compare with the real world. Now, an ideal type in this sense is an artificial construct that we can use, not as something that represents reality, but something to compare with it. Now, the first ideal type is this idea of comprehensive rationality, where policymakers have the ability to process all information, consider all possibilities, you know, separate their facts from values, and and uh, you know perform policy in a kind of linear manner and such like. You know, they're kind of all power, powerful beings. And we use that to compare with this idea of bounded rationality, which is that people only have the ability to process so much information and they have to come up with either cognitive shortcuts or organisational procedures to process enough information to make choices. The second ideal type is very closely related and it's, it relates to a policy cycle that you know uh, is policy making through a series of linear stages. And that's probably one of the most popular and models of policy making, but also one of the most inaccurate, and we'll talk about that more later. Now, the the sort of more accurate picture is of a complex policy making environment, which is non-linear and there's no all-powerful centre, you know, pushing out policy from from the top. So here we'll just focus on the key points, and you can follow up those in in much more detail in other podcasts. Okay, so the first point that's relevant to policy analysis is incorporate policymaker psychology into policy analysis. So policy techs already do that to some extent when they talk about being concise and uh, keeping it short, you know, because that's about reducing cognitive load. That's, that's, that's a shortcut that you're giving to your audience. But the other is uh, much more uh, in terms of so-called cognitive biases or heuristics or emotions that people use to process information. And there's quite the literature now on uh, what cognitive biases might look like or um, what they might suggest. You know, so I've given you a list in the chapter and it's um, 
It includes things like, you know, audiences are vulnerable to the ways in which other people frame problems. Uh, they might see vivid events as more representative of reality than they are, and so they pay disproportionate attention to some issues because of their memory of those events. They might sum up entire social groups with reference to very few and therefore characterise those populations in a really sort of, uh, simplistic way. Uh, they might value losses more than gains, which means they misjudge the trade-offs between what they have and what other uh, policy choices there might be. They might have unrealistic hopes for things to which they've already committed, which can produce inertia or bias towards the status quo. They might have a need for coherence or to sort of make sense of patterns and, and assign too much certainty to very limited information. They might converge towards groupthink, which can limit the range of options that they consider, or their anxiety can cause them to make rushes to judgment act quickly without full consideration. And, you know, it's very difficult to sort of incorporate all of those things within analysis, but it's worth thinking about um, the ways in which people combine cognition and emotion to process information and how we should, how we should think about how we should react. Now, in terms of policy theories, they're largely focusing on explaining what happens given these conditions. So some of those uh, consequences include the following. So first, uh, they have limited attention, so they can only pay attention to a tiny proportion of their responsibilities and their attention tends to lurch from one issue to another. So you can see policymakers paying no attention to an issue for a very long time and suddenly pay attention to it. And, you know, so you would incorporate that kind of thing into analysis, at least by thinking, well, there's no necessary expectation that someone's going to pay attention to this thing simply because I've, I've written about it. Then there is a focus on power and ideas. So some ways of understanding and describing the world dominate policy debate. So they help some ideas and help uh, marginalise others. They help some populations and marginalise other populations. Then there's a focus on beliefs and coalitions. So the you know so you might say policy actors see the world through their beliefs. They engage in politics to turn their beliefs into policy. They form coalitions with people who share them. And they compete with coalitions who don't. We can talk about that later in terms of what an analyst can do about that. But what you might conclude just now is that the same piece of policy analysis might get great traction in one coalition, but be, be completely opposed by another. Then there's a focus on dealing efficiently with complexity, with strategies like trial and error rather than kind of central planning. Then there's a focus on how people frame issues and produce narratives to... Um, you know, uh, try and persuade them to take action. Then there's a literature on the social construction of target populations in which policymakers draw on quick emotional or strategic judgments about people based on social stereotypes. And they use those stereotypes to uh, propose benefits to some populations and, and uh, punishments to others. Or there's a focus on rules and norms within policymaking. And, you know, the key point about institutions is that some of them are formal and written and people know what they are, but most are informal, unwritten. They exist in the mind of participants. And it's very difficult to find out what they are or how, how they're communicated. And then finally, uh, there are studies of policy learning, which suggest it's a political process in which people are engaging selectively with information to make political choices. It's not a rational search for truth. You know, so we, we bear these things in mind when we're thinking about how our audience would 
interact with the information we give them and how we should respond, you know, how we should anticipate these, these problems. Now, there are, th this kind of literature is not really designed to give you strategic advice, but there are, you know, these snippets of, of things that people talk about, about how to think about how successful actors uh, deal with these kind of problems or, or constraints. So the classic kinds of advice is, you know, combine facts with emotional appeals to you know, get attention from your audience. Don't, you know, so don't expect the evidence to speak for itself. Uh, tell stories that are easy to understand and they, they build on people's biases and apportion praise and blame to different characters and highlight the, the you know, take home message or the moral of a story. Or, you know, interpret evidence or, or frame your evidence to be consistent with the beliefs of the actors you're trying to influence. And, you know, be prepared to exploit a, a time or a window of opportunity when people have the opportunity to adopt a particular solution. Okay, so that really is all of that. It really just comes from a simple insight that, that you need to deal with bounded rationality or deal with the the need for people to combine cognition and emotion within a policy process over which they have limited knowledge and control. So the second point is to incorporate a sense of policy context and complexity into your analysis. And I would think of a policymaking environment as summed up as five or six concepts. So in the book, there's a picture of the policy cycle and then next to it, there is essentially my attempt to do a kind of spirograph picture of lots of different cycles, which is a much more realistic kind of uh, visualization. But, you know, it's not particularly simple or useful. So instead there's this other visualization, which is really just a collection of concepts. And you can tell a simple story about policymaking environments just by going through those concepts. So if you have this to hand, it's figured it's an image of the policy process. It looks a bit like a blue turtle upside down. And if we start at the top, you would say, okay, the policymaking environment is made up of you know, actors, which is many different policymakers and influencers spread across many different policymaking venues. And venues are places where authoritative choice takes place. Then you would say each of those venues has its own institutions. So that's the formal rules that, that guide action, plus the informal norms and understandings that are difficult to pick up. In each venue, you can find different networks, which are the relationships between policymakers and the people who influence them. And within each venue, you tend to find different uh, ideas or paradigms or dominant ways of thinking about issues. You know, so the classic would be, you know, in the Treasury departments, there's a kind of idea about value for money, whereas in health, public health departments, there's an idea about you know, evidence-based policymaking, that sort of thing. So the idea would be to sort of tap into all these dominant ideas. And then there's this catch-all phrase context and events, which is, you know, socio-economic conditions and things like elections or crises that can really tend, uh, you know, produce big lurches in attention. Okay, so if you look at the chapter, it gives you these summaries of narrative policy framework uh, uh, until the, the institutional analysis and development framework. Now, I'm not going to go through and summarise all those because, uh, as I say, you can find those summaries in other parts of the website. Really, instead, what we'll focus on is what are the implications of these extra considerations? Now, one the one big take-home message, this is the rub with policy theories. They're not particularly helpful if you're looking for practical advice 
okay, they, re they really serve a different purpose, which is to prompt you to think critically about the environment in which you operate. So in that vein, you know, the big take home message is that the context for policymaking is more important than the substance of your policy advice. And I think that's just worth thinking about, you know, about what could you possibly expect one document, uh, its impact to be in a, in a huge complex policymaking environment with a huge number of people. But what about more practical advice? Well, if you go back to that sort of turtle image, you can generate some general kind of uh, bland advice about the benefits of long-term engagement. If you engage for the long-term, you can learn where the action is, you know, which venues are most important. You can learn the, the so-called rules of the game in each venue. You can form alliances. You can learn the language that has the highest currency in each venue. And you can be in the right place at the right time to exploit crises and events. Or you could take uh, sort of equally practical, but you know, a more dispiriting advice from complexity theorists who would say, you know, things like uh, law-like behavior is difficult to identify. So a policy that was successful in one context may not be successful in another, or the policy making systems sort of defy central control. So don't be surprised when your proposed intervention doesn't have the desired effect or focus on trial and error rather than a single strategy give local actors the freedom to adapt quickly and so on. So in other words, a lot of complexity theorists suggest that analysts should avoid this idea of a single document, one-time policy analysis with a one-size-fits-all solution. Instead, the aim, or the, the, the quite unrealistic aim, is to encourage your audience to think of policy as continuous action, adapting through trial and error and just to think critically all the time about what they're doing. Now that's that's a big sell, isn't it? That's not that's not so easy to encourage among an audience looking for a you know something more doable. Okay. But what these theories and concepts prompt us to do is think about the difference between what you need as analysis an analyst, you know, your your functional requirements, you know, so the steps you have to take and what you need policymakers to do versus what this literature tells you to expect. Now, it's useful to think, what would you do if you start with this need to have practical advice, but you accept that this literature largely tells you about the limits to your um, likely impact and the limits to uh, the, the, the policy action taken by the policymaker on the basis of your analysis. Now, that's, that's not an easy thing to reflect on, but we'll go into that in more detail in chapter seven. Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I'm a professor of politics and public policy at the University of Stirling. This is chapter five, called What Insights from Wider Studies of Power, Knowledge, Politics and Policy Do Policy Analysts Need to Consider? Quite a mouthful. Uh, this is probably the most important chapter of the book, and it's the one that will expand much more on the website because I've really just started to scratch the surface of the texts that are relevant to policy analysis but don't necessarily speak directly to policy analyst texts. Okay, so uh, you know, uh, I'll give you the introductory messages and then encourage you to look for you know additional work as, as we go on. Okay, so it really 
prompts budding uh, students or analysts to think about the meaning of policy analysis, you know, at, you know, at its core. You know, what is it for and who is it for? And it also prompts us to reflect further on how we decide whose knowledge counts as high quality evidence and policy relevant information. So the chapter begins with texts that engage directly with policy analyst text, analysis texts. And the first is Stone's policy paradox. Now, the policy paradox that, that she describes is that it's possible to define the same policies in contradictory ways. And that's not just different people disagreeing. The same person can entertain very different ways to understand problems and can juggle many different criteria to decide that a policy outcome was a success or a failure. Or the same population can report contradictory views to support a specific policy response and its complete opposite when asked about it in a, a survey. Therefore, I mean, the key point there is every policy analyst choice is a political choice. It's not a rational, optimal choice that everyone can get behind. In fact, uh, you know, there's a kind of famous um, theorem in economics and welfare economics that pretty much says there is no way, you know, given certain assumptions, there's no way to produce a choice that would benefit everyone. You know, this is politics. This is people winning and people losing. So Stone focuses on the factors that undermine simple, rational, five-step policy analysis. Uh, in, uh, so she says, you know, people find it difficult to act rationally in the way normally described. So it's very difficult to sort of uh, uh, process all information, rank your preferences, be consistent and such like. You know, people just don't think and act that way. The second thing is that people are social actors in a community. You know, they're not simply individuals making rational choices. And therefore, morals and emotions really matter. And she focuses a lot on the ambiguity of the values that we talked about in five-step policy analysis. You know, the values and goals seem uh, straightforward, but um, are actually ambiguous and subject to contestation and interpretation. So, you know, classics include, you know, equity. It's a very popular value that you apply to policy analysis. But it really involves working out costs and benefits to populations. Therefore, it hinges on which groups benefits and which groups costs we include. Or we might focus on um, liberty. Uh, so there's there's generally a balancing act about freedom can you know from coercion by the state and freedom from the harm caused by others. Uh, so there's debates on individual and state responsibilities and whose behaviour needs to change to reduce the harm to what population. So in each case, this is about, you know, whose efficiency, whose liberty and such like. So in that context, policy analysis is about political actors using policy relevant stories to influence the ways in which their audience understands the nature of policy problems, the feasibility of solutions within this wider context in which people contest the proper balance between state, community and market action. So Stone talks about key elements of storytelling to try and, you know, describe policy analysis as a story rather than this uh, rational technical document. So uh, key factors include the use of symbols you know, to sum up an issue or an action in a single picture or word, to include characters like heroes or villains to symbolise uh, the cause of a problem or the source of a solution. He talks about narrative arcs, you know, like uh, a battle by your hero to overcome adversity. The use of metaphor 
use of ambiguity strategically to give different people different reasons to support the same thing, using numbers to make a case, and assigning causation. You know, essentially, the story is about who is to blame and who is responsible for, for doing something about it. Now, in the book, I've sort of slipped in a discussion of Riker there. Uh, so he has a sort of famous term, heristetic, which describes, according to him, structuring the world so you can win. So this is, this is about designing the rules in which people make choices, because those rules really matter to the, the choices that, that people make as a group, and exploiting how people deal with bounded rationality. So, you know, the, the kind of strategies he's talking about include make your preferred problem definition or solution as easy as un to understand as possible, and make other problems or solutions difficult to understand or process. So present them in the abstract or provide excessive detail. Then emphasize the high cognitive cost to the examination of many different options. So that you can design a comparison of a, of a very small number of options to make sure that yours is, is looking good in comparison with the other. Now, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you do these things. Uh, but it just taps into this truism in policy studies that you know the evidence does not speak for itself. And instead, this is about people engaging in, in effective and manipulative communication and persuasion to assign meaning to that evidence. Now, that's good context for the second main text that engages with policy analysis. And it's uh, Backey's What's the Problem Represented to, to Be Approach, or, or WAPR. And her distinction is between problem and problematization. So problem might imply that an issue is fixed, identifiable, self-evident, well understood, take for, taken for granted. Whereas problematization describes the people in which people create pro pro policy problems as they make sense of them in practice. So Backey presents the six-step process to understand and reflect on problem definition. So first, What's the problem represented to be in a specific policy? You know, what's its alleged cause? What do people say a government should do about it? Which part of government or individual is responsible? Second, what presuppositions or assumptions underlie this representation of the problem? So that can be deep-seated cultural values about what is normal behaviour or deviant behaviour and what's the role of government in private life or family life. Third is, how has this representation of the problem come about? So these ways of thinking can exist for long periods or problems can be can exist before governments uh, feel the need to solve them. So, so what, what was the catalyst here? Fourth is, what is left unproblematic in this problem representation? Uh, where are the silences? You know, so this is focusing on the power to decide who or what is a problem and the powerless, uh, powerlessness of many people to challenge that choice. Now, a classic is uh, if you identify the, the problems, so-called problems within a population, uh, they can be caused by their own lifestyle or the ways in which the state interprets the behaviour. And that's a classic, uh, you know, profoundly different way of thinking about is this population actually problematic and is it their fault or is it the way the state treats them? Fifth. Uh, what effects are produced by this representation of the problem? So a lot of problem definitions, if successful, they can help close off debate. They can help stigmatise some populations. And they really prompt us to ask who benefits from the current definition. Then finally, how or where is this representation of the problem being produced? 
and defended and how can it be questioned and disrupted. So this approach highlights the relationship between our knowledge of policy processes and the ways in which we as analysts or researchers use that knowledge to pursue a policy analysis strategy. And that kind of approach helps us segue to a much wider literature on the use of policy relevant knowledge to address problems. So the next section is entitled Policy Analysis as Colonization. And it introduces uh, the work of Smith as an exemplar of the study of colonization in relation to the power to socially construct, in this case, indigenous populations, uh, almost always negatively, to assign government uh, burdens. And Smith, this is a crucial point, if Smith argues that researchers have been complicit in that subordination, colonization, using an image of Western scientific objectivity to prioritize scientific knowledge at the expense of indigenous knowledge. And um, so these kinds of insights help us think differently about five-step policy analysis. So for example, it should affect how we think about problem definition. Now, a lot of the conclusions of this kind of work is that instead of uh, researchers deciding that they have the ability to sum up populations and problems, they should seek to co-produce research with indigenous peoples. And... Um, a lot of this research questions the willingness and ability of analysts to engage in that way. You know, there's a lot of lip service paid to it now. But I think the, the emphasis is on, you know, if, if you're going to do it, do it right. And um, not many people are willing to do it right. And second, it influences how we think about how to generate and compare solutions. So the, the particular focus, I think, for us would be on cost-benefit analysis. You know, the, the, the classic cost-benefit analysis is an attempt by a researcher or an organisation to identify and compare uh, costs and benefits to populations with a single unit of analysis. Now, this, you know, in this new context, that is an exercise of power to decide how we should understand everyone's experience, place relative value in the outcomes, and, and take a calculation of their value to one population and generalise it to others. Now, sort of overall, Smith is highlighting the limits to truly co-produced policy analysis, at least in the absence of you know radical change or the you know major redistribution of, of uh, resources and, and power. And so it highlights some of the questions in the chapter uh, that are some of the headings in there, which I'll, I'll just describe briefly here. So the first question there is, you know, can we describe policy analysis processes as co-produced or in relation to co-production, if there's an imbalance of power and an incongruence of ideas between participants. So essentially, you know, often people will describe co-production, but, uh, you know, they have the power to decide what the agenda is and, and to, you know, sum up the results. The second question is, are such forms of policy analysis a deliberate substitute for changes to political practices? So there are quite a few studies that suggest that people use the language of co-production and, uh, you know, respect uh, as a sort of sheen, you know, as a way to signal that they're doing something without actually doing it. And the final question is, you know, does the production of a common agreement simply hide inequalities of power? So, you know, we'd see the, the write-up or the outputs from these kind of co-production exercises as, you know, some people winning about how to 
sum up what what happened rather than this kind of um, you know uh, you know truly equal truly agreed consensus product okay so that that leads us on to that that can take us in lots of different directions in the chapter of this brief description of uh, Hindesi's work which is one of those texts that really kind of influenced me as a as an undergraduate in the olden days and if you were to sort of sum up its main take-home message, it's simply that there's a lot of talk within this kind of field about uh, claims to superior knowledge, or, you know, the most uh, high-quality, policy-relevant knowledge. And his point, really, in a nutshell, is that you can only claim superiority according to the rules within each tradition of producing knowledge. So to assert the supremacy of one form of knowledge is an act of power to decide how we measure useful knowledge, what criteria we use. And if there's no agreement on what the criteria are, then there'll be no agreement on what is high quality knowledge, at least across different groups. You would find high agreement within groups. There would be no, no more than that. So that in turn is context for the discussion of the next section, policy analysis for marginalized groups. So Doucet draws on these kinds of insights often related to you know, phrases like you know, critical race theory in particular, or critical policy analysis, to identify three guiding questions. The first is, for what purposes do policymakers find evidence useful? You know, sometimes it's in relation to the scientific quality or uh, the extent to which they, they draw on stakeholder knowledge, but sometimes people uh, or policymakers find evidence useful just to support their own case. Second, who decides what to use and what is useful? And third, how do critical theories inform these questions? So then to say, uh, goes on to recommend a, a collection of responses to deal with the, the imbalances of power that can further marginalise populations with research. And this is a five-step collection of responses. So the first is recognise the ways in which research and policy combine to subordinate social groups. You know, so this is the idea that policy and analysts might see themselves as objective and there to help uh, human dignity, but actually are complicit in marginalising some groups. Second, reject the idea that scientific research can be seen as objective or neutral, and therefore reject the idea that researchers are beyond reproach for their role in the marginalisation of groups. The third is give proper recognition to experiential and other forms of knowledge rather than privileging scientific knowledge. The fourth is commit to social justice through things like policy analysis. And the fifth is to centre race within those analyses. And uh, Okay, I paused there for no reason. Okay, now uh, Scholars such as Michener uh, provide a framework to understand the wider policymaking context in which these approaches interact. You know, they, they help us identify the rules and norms and practices that reinforce the types of marginalisation and subordination we're talking about. And Michener uh, has produced this framework called the Racialised Feedback Framework, which, which would make much more sense if you go into the policy concepts and theories that we referenced in the previous chapter because racialized feedback would relate to things like policy feedback. Okay, 
But this feedback, uh, th this this framework helps explain uh, the ways in which racism and white supremacy have uh, uh, done what Michener calls uh, you know, pervaded social, economic, and political institutions. Without you know, focus on the United States. And Michener goes into key mechanisms that help us understand the context in which policy analysis might take place. So she has uh, four categories. The first is channeling resources. So those are the the rules of policymaking, the ways that you distribute government resources which benefits some groups and punishes others. Then you have generating interests in which you know race and racial stratification is a key factor in the, the, the power of interest groups and the balance of power between them. And then uh, Michener uses this phrase shaping interpretive schema. So race is a lens through which policy actors understand and seek to solve policy problems. And then finally, this balance between centralization and uh, subnational government, which can inf influence the extent to which policy design, uh, you know, uh, marginalizes or challenges the marginalization of social groups. So, I mean, obviously, I've just scratched the surface of those kinds of texts. So I'm just sort of introducing some of these key texts and encouraging you to read the original sources. Uh, but for now, if you think, we can ask ourselves, what does all this add up to? And I think the key take-home point is that it helps us revisit this idea of a pragmatic, client-orientated policy analyst, which is what you would get from most of the, the classic five-step guides. And I think this type of analysis helps us provide a challenge to that common advice. So most policy analysis textbooks advocate a form of pragmatism, you know, art and craft. And they focus on client-oriented steps to produce just enough policy-relevant information to help define problems, identify solutions. So in that context, it makes sense uh, because pragmatism relates to the idea that policy analysis is art and craft and it's about focusing on what is possible, what is feasible. But in the context of the text we've described here, Pragmatism really takes on a different meaning. It becomes a euphemism for conservatism, an excuse to reject ambitious and necessary policy changes you know, in the name of pragmatism or feasibility. So our focus on the wider political context uh, should prompt us to reflect further on the relationship between power and policy-relevant information when we decide whose knowledge counts and uh, the extent to which it contributes to you know, more or less radical policy change. So we're talking about people, instead of producing you know, rational, objective, scientific and policy analysis, they're exercising power to tell stories that benefit some populations and punish others. And they very deliberately draw on limited sources of knowledge to make their case. So these kinds of descriptions of policy analysis reinforce wider studies of power, which suggests that the, the most profound kinds of power are the hardest to observe. You know, so... Uh, for example, actors use their resources to reinforce social attitudes and policymaker beliefs to reinforce how they think of target populations. And we're talking about uh, the use of knowledge to manipulate uh, uh, or exploit shared beliefs to identify some notion of the public interest or encourage social norms that benefit some people and, and um, harm others. 
And the, the point is that often a lot of these beliefs remain unspoken and are taken for granted in everyday practice. So you don't have to find explicit manipulative policy analysts to, to decide that you, you, you can see or theorise these unequal power relationships. And the final point there is, you know, that one of the most important exercises of power is to dismiss a population by dismissing their claim to knowledge. You know, it, it seems like a kind of fairly mundane debate about scientific knowledge, but this is really underpinning a wider discussion of, of politics and power. So in that context, this section or chapter identifies the ways in which policy analysis can help challenge such strategies when people are doing their work. It sort of prompts policy analysts to build in this acknowledgement of inequalities in relation to marginalised populations and pay more attention to inequalities in research and policy analysis practice. So in other words, don't treat policy analysis simply as a pragmatic, client-oriented activity, because this perspective misses the bigger picture and contributes to the practices that help maintain inequalities. Or put another way, that kind of narrow pragmatism goes against a wider professional commitment to speak truth to power and foster human dignity. Hello, uh, this is Paul Kearney. I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to remember my name. This is the sixth I've recorded. It, is, it stops to make sense after a while. Okay, but this is the, the end of part one. This is the, um, the briefest of the, the chapters and the discussions, because it really just sums up uh, the, the question in the chapter six. How have, how have these how-to-do policy analysis texts incorporated these insights so far. So, you know, what essentially have they learned from studies of policy making and, and critical policy analysis? So I would answer that question briefly as follows. So first, uh, the modern policy analysis texts have incorporated many developments in the study of policy processes. So if you look at Dan's book, there's a really good discussion of why there is uh, no such thing as evidence-based policy analysis. Or I look at uh, Weimar and Vining, They'll tell you about the need for political skills as much as economic methods. You know, even if they do, they will uh, 200 pages to those methods. Or if you look at Smith's Guide to Flexible Communication, it really incorporates policymaking theories. Uh, second, these texts do describe the gap between what policy analysis analysts need or uh, need policymakers to do and what policymakers can actually do. So uh, again, Weimar and Vining are good on uh, factors like the the unpredictable effect that different clients and contexts have on your task and the, the need to incorporate the pressure on time and resources, the ambiguity of goals and a tendency of your clients to not know what they want to do or, or for their goals to only be revealed after you've done your analysis. And then the need to balance many factors, you know, addressing a client's question, describing uncertainty, and uh, recognising the benefit of analytical humility, humility, all to sort of establish your re reputation. You know, so there are lots of useful discussions about uh, the difference between uh, what you might need and what uh, can actually happen. 
And some texts focus really well on normative and ethical issues. So, for example, if you look at Mintram, he describes new professional practices and they include to engage with many stakeholders, uh, to define problems and uh, reflect a diversity of knowledge and views, to present a range of feasible solutions which make clear their distributional effects on target population and to develop race and gender analysis tools as part of that sort of policy analysis toolkit. But still, uh, most of these texts remain committed to quite simple, very pragmatic guides. They're informed by insights on knowledge production and policy process research, but without imagining new forms of policy analysis. Now, the most interesting discussion of that is by Meltzer and Swartz, who provide the most recent account and the most spirited defence of five-step policy analysis, largely because they argue that the critics of this kind of approach do not provide a useful alternative to help guide new analysts. So it's, so it's one thing to highlight all the problems that I've been talking about. It's another to come up with a form of advice that people can use when they learn about policy analysis. So they argue quite convincingly that you know these guides are essential for people who want to engage in policymaking to be persuasive and, and credible. You know, if, if they want to be seen as credible, then analysts have to do something to identify problems, defend the way they've analysed them, defend the way they've used evaluative criteria and so on, so that they can prevent, present uh, you know, a clear and definitive analytical guide to policymakers. So really what they say is the problem is not five-step policy analysis per se. The problem is that a lot of it is too rigid and rationalistic and that can be solved by a more flexible and iterative approach, which they talk about in more detail. So that's the context for part two of the book. You know, there's, there's still a commitment to maintaining simple and pragmatic guides informed by insights on knowledge production and policy process research. If so, you know, how do we compare those two things, the need for five-step guides and the need to incorporate, you know, uh, new insights. Hey there, my name is Paul Kearney. I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. And this is Chapter 7, uh, comparing what you need as a policy analyst with policymaking reality. So this is really an introductory chapter to the second part. And it really exists to challenge a tendency in some you know, policy analyst texts to equate what policy makers and analysts need to do their job effectively with what they can actually expect to happen. Yet there's a major distinction between those two things. So the chapter talks a, a little bit about uh, Laswell's distinction, which we talked about earlier, the distinction between policy process research as the analysis of policy and policy analysis as the analysis for policy. Now both provide, if they're kept separate at least, both provide different answers to key questions. And the key question we describe in this chapter is, you know, does policy making actually proceed through a series of steps or stages? Now, the short answer is no. And, you know, for me, that idea of, of policymaking through steps and stages is, is one of the most you know, misleading things in policy process research and, and policy analysis. Now, 
you can read up on uh, accounts, you know, very convincing accounts that still see a focus on steps and stages as useful. Uh, but you know, consider these two flaws in, in that kind of focus on cycles. First, the focus on stages and cycles is descriptively inaccurate. You know, so it, it encourages you to imagine, even in the abstract, you know, a single policy cycle that, that takes place through a series of orderly stages. Now, that is inaccurate unless you imagine that there are thousands of those cycles interacting with each other to produce much less orderly behaviour, much less predictable outputs. Now, that's fair enough. If you go back to that spirograph diagram, you know, that's much more accurate. You know, there, there are many, many people producing, you know, five-step analysis and trying to proceed through a series of stages, but they all interact to produce this much more messy process. Now, secondly, prescriptively, it gives you misleading advice because, you know, it encourages you to think that you can engage in policy analysis in an orderly system and produce a very kind of ordered uh, plan of action. And, and, you know, so both of those things are, are quite inaccurate and unhelpful. So you might wonder why that image of a policy cycle endures so long if it's uh, so you know, kind of criticised by policy process research. And I'll give you two answers that you can follow up if, if you're interested. The first is it arose from a long-term misunderstanding in policy studies. So if you go right back to what Laswell said, he actually described decision functions. And, you know, the kind of famous functions are intelligence, recommendation, prescription, invocation, application, appraisal and termination. And those things, those functions are very similar to what we think about as a policy cycle, you know, problem definition, uh, you know, uh, adopting a solution, implementing, evaluating and so on. Uh, but if you look at the history there, uh, you know, originally there, there was no description of a cycle. And I think it largely became a, a, a way to introduce policymaking in, in introductory texts or for governments to tell a story about what they were doing. Now, I think the second the second aspect is much more important for us. Uh, I would say it really the, the cycle, the stages of the steps, they describe functional requirements of policy analysis, not what will happen, but what, what people require. And you know, think of that, keep that distinction in mind. So just to hammer at home, you know, functional requirements are what people need from policy making systems to help them manage their task, you know, through five step policy analysis or help them understand and engage in policy process through a simple cycle. But that's very different from actual processes and outcomes. So, you know, policy concepts and theories tell us about bounded rationality, which limits the comprehensiveness of your analysis and, you know, policymakers understanding and policy making complexity, which undermines, uh, you know, everyone's understanding and engagement in policy processes. You know, so put short, policy analysis takes place not in a cycle, but in a policy-making environment over which no one has full knowledge or control. Now, this distinction between functional requirements of policy analysts and policymakers and the real world uh, helps us rethink the role of things like problem definition and solution, solution development. Okay. So first, it might prompt us to ask, who exactly is our audience when we define problems? You know, so we've gone from thinking of a single client to thinking of uh, a lack of clarity about who clients are in multi-centric systems. And then it might 
a prompt us to ask what we can realistically expect them to do with our solutions, you know, given that we've identified complexity and non-linearity and, and high uncertainty about how you know, a, new, a new policy would, would interact with the rest. Okay, so it helps us revisit those key steps. So problem, you know, policy analysis texts do discuss in some detail that problem definition as a political act. It's about framing, which is about exercising power. But they talk less about the fact that the ability to frame issues is not in their hands. You know, you might be able to produce a policy analysis document with a particular framing in mind. But if your audience is more important than your analysis, and there are many different audiences spread across the political system, then no one is really in control of, of how to define those issues. So put, put another way, your policy analysis, analysis texts put you know the analyst at the centre of things, but they're not at the centre of things. Then it helps us revisit uh, adopting a solution. So that is about modifying what is already there rather than starting from a, a blank page. And, and policy analyst texts, you know, talk about that quite a lot. But what they talk about less, apart from in uh, you know texts like Dunn, is that we just don't know what the impact of a new policy instrument will be in a non-linear system in which there are many uh, other instruments exist. You know, it can have a major effect or it can have zero effect. Okay, so if you think of the policy process as a complex system, we think of it as determining the impact of your solution. It can make sure that your intervention has a, a disproportionate impact on outcomes from zero to profound. Okay, and that is not really in your control when you make these suggestions. Okay, so, you know, just to sum up just now, so policy analysts have limited control over the definition of a problem and policymakers do not control the outcomes of their solutions. Now, that's a very different conclusion from, uh, you know, let's engage in five-step analysis with you and your client at the centre of it. And then let's think of a policy cycle in which if they adopt your recommendation, it sets in place this other series of stages. You know, now that really happens in a way. I've just described it. So that's key context for the rest of the chapters. They help us reconsider things like uh, the prospect or, uh, you know, if we should want things like evidence-based policy analysis and policy making, the extent to which uh, policy analysts can be entrepreneurial and the, the, our ability to engage in so-called systems thinking. Hello, my name is Paul Kearney and I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. This is Chapter 8, Who Should Be Involved in the Process of Policy Analysis. Now, if, been, if you've been listening to the chapters up to now, you'll notice that I, I really struggle to pronounce policy analysis and policy analyst, but bear with me. I just need to talk a bit slower. Okay, so this chapter compares two different approaches to the production of policy-relevant knowledge. Now, they're not mutually exclusive, exclusive. I think of them as ideal types that we can use to compare with each other. You don't find them quite like this in the real world, but it's useful to tease out their key elements. Okay, so the first is the so-called evidence-based policymaking, which emphasises the role of a small number of experts synthesising evidence for policymakers. The second is co-production, which emphasises the role of deliberation between a large and more diverse group of people. 
as I say, that these approaches are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, many people try to combine both of those things, but they present important trade-offs that no policy analyst should ignore. So I'm, go I'm going to introduce both of their stories here. But um, as with the policy concepts and theories, there is a huge amount of other material that you can follow instead of this, this one. Uh, there's many posts and recorded lectures on my website. So look for the pages called EBPM for the evidence-based stuff. And then look for the page that's called ANTSOG, which is a series of uh, talks in Australia and New Zealand, primarily about you know the role of evidence and policy making. So that's where you go if you want much more on, on that kind of topic. Okay, so for now, the key issues for policy analysts, are, I broke them down into three. Uh, so the first is how many people should be involved in policy analysis. I'm talking about a few key experts or many so-called non-expert voices. Second, whose knowledge counts? So we've talked about the fact that, you know, assigning value to knowledge is a political act that can reinforce inequalities, particularly if you rely on a narrow range of scientific sources. Or you can focus on challenging those inequalities when giving more respect a wider range of academic and experiential sources. Then third, who should control policy analysis and, and then policy design? Okay, so you could imagine a relatively centralised uh, form of government in which your aim is to roll out, uh, you know, the allegedly best policy instruments nationally, you know, keep it uniform, because you know, those are the, the evidence-based instruments. Or do you want to go for decentralised measures to allow people the discretion to make different choices based on the same policy analysis? Okay, so the two stories. We'll start with the story of evidence-based policy making. And again, this is kind of stylized just to you know, get us thinking. So one story of evidence-based policy analysis is that it should be based on the best available evidence of what works. Now, what works was a kind of key phrase used by the Labour government under Tony Blair in the UK, and it, it took off in many other countries. You know, what, what matters is what works. And in this kind of scenario, often the description of the best evidence relates to the idea that there is a hierarchy of evidence according to the research methods that people use. So at the top would be the systematic review of uh, experimental or randomised control trials. And at the bottom would be expertise. And in a lot of these hierarchies, you don't even find things like practitioner experience or, or knowledge or stakeholder feedback, user feedback, you know, community knowledge, that sort of thing. This kind of narrow uh, sense of what counts and this hierarchy has major implications for policy learning and policy transfer. Now, you can also look up on the concepts page, the thousand words page, there, there are one or two um, podcasts on policy transfer as well. You know, policy transfer, you know, in a, in a very kind of simple sense is the importation of an idea or an intervention from another regional government. <clears throat> so put simply, uh, this kind of, you know, evidence-based approach fosters an experimental method designed to identify the causal effect of a very narrowly defined policy intervention. And then, you know, if you were to import it or scale it up, to a larger region, it would be akin to describing how you, uh, you know, dispense medicine. Okay, so the evidence identifies the 
causal effect of a specific active ingredient to be administered with the right dosage. Now that suggests, you know, this idea of fidelity. You have to you have to stay, f- you know, uh, faithful to the the evidence of what works. And so there's a very strong commitment to a uniform model. And a key point is that precludes the kind of consensus-seeking processes we might associate with collaboration or co-production, because the idea is that many voices contribute to policy design to suit a specific context. And you can't do that if you've already decided what the, the uniform model is. Then you have a story of co-production and policymaking. Now, again, there are lots of different versions of this story, uh, but one is that it should be based on respectful conversations between a wide range and large number of policymakers and citizens. And often descriptions emphasise the diversity and value of diverse policy-relevant information and knowledge in which you you still value scientific evidence, but you consider it alongside other forms of research and experiential knowledge, community voices, and other sources of normative um, debate and values. So this this rejection of a simple, narrow hierarchy of evidence also has major implications for policy learning and and transfer. So to put it simply, uh, in this case, you know, co-production or collaborative method is designed to identify the positive effect of a process. You know, uh, you know. So the the effect would be high ownership amongst a community uh, about how to define a problem, and you know, high uh, wide commitment to a commonly agreed solution. And that would necessitate you know the absence of central government control. Uh, so if you're talking about that kind of collaborative governance, you know, one, one potential cause of its success is the process used to foster agreement rather than the intervention itself or, you know, or as well as the intervention. Okay, and indeed part of that collaboration might be to produce the rules of collective action and the criteria to evaluate success. You know, so you wouldn't leave that simply to analysts or scientists. Now, if you have such a strong commitment to those processes, it precludes the adoption of a uniform evidence-based model that we might associate with narrowly defined stories of evidence-based policymaking. So I summarise those in, in, a, in a table in which uh, you have the following categories. So the first is the main story of each one. You know, so the evidence-based story is that interventions are highly regarded when backed by empirical data from international RCTs. Whereas the co-production story is people tell stories of policy experiences, they invite other people to learn from them. And policy is driven not by the evidence, but by governance principles, which are about co-producing policy with communities and users. So you could see how those two differences would, would lead to other questions about how you gather evidence for policy analysis. So with the evidence-based stories, uh, you, know, you have a very kind of um, relatively narrow search based on methods. Whereas gathering evidence uh, through co-production uh, is much more about generating diverse sources of, sources of knowledge from many people. Uh, then the next question might be, how do you, you know, uh, scale up activity or you know, uh, you know, seek evidence-based best practice? Well, with the evidence-based story, you're talking about a uniform model with fidelity and the correct dosage and such like. Whereas with Co-production, this is much more about telling people stories of your policy experiences and, and inviting other people to learn from them with no obligation to, to do the same thing. 
So in one case, uh, the biggest aim is to ensure the, the, the correct administration of the same ingredient, because that is the, you know, the evidence supports that intervention. And different aim is to foster principles like localism and respect for communities and service user experiences. Now, the key point is you might want both of those things. Both of them might, might sound like they have good elements, so why not seek the best of both worlds? Uh, but I think, you know, that's fine. But I think what I've described is, is in practice, governments do, you know, they, have, they, they often describe this idea of letting a, a thousand flowers bloom. But it's not clear if they're doing... You know, if they're doing that deliberately with or with clarity, or they simply contain a lot of contradictory practices that they don't know how to deal with. So at the very least, if we want both, we also need clarity on how to connect them to avoid the sense that we're just you know, contributing to a big mess of approaches. Okay, or perhaps just as worryingly, people often use the language of co-production to boost the legitimacy of expert-driven processes or to boost the legitimacy of your policy analysis. Uh, you know, they, often people uh, use the, the language of co-production as a veneer to say, okay, well, we've spoken with many people, therefore this scientific work has more value. Now, those kind of opportunities are, uh, well, not opportunities, those kind of issues should prompt you to question your role as a policy ana analyst. Okay, so, in this discussion, we ask if your role is simply to gather the best evidence for a client according to methods or publications, or generate new insights from stakeholders and citizens, your wider voices. And in the next <clears throat> chapter, we consider such questions as part of a, a wider examination of what the role of a policy analyst should be. Hello there, my name is Paul Kearney. I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling and this is Chapter 9. What is your role as a policy analyst? Now this chapter briefly compares different ways to think of policy analysis as a practice and a profession. And the main distinction that I'm pursuing here is between, uh, on the one hand, the image of a policy analyst in these uh, how to do it texts. This is about being pragmatic and client oriented, oriented, and most uh, how to do how to do it texts. You know, suggests you're focusing on things like uh, your communication and feasibility. Then you have uh, you know what we've maybe described as a more critical and decolonizing role which is focused explicitly on using policy analysis and research to challenge inequalities and marginalization. Now, what's interesting for me is that uh, there are two different drivers towards one or, one or more of these things. Okay, so the first driver comes from uh, the chapter on insights from policy process research. You know, they help us identify the limits to analytical capability and policymaker capacity. So, you know, policymakers have to use heuristics or cognitive shortcuts to ignore most information to make choices. And organisations also have standard operating procedures to limit their information processes. And in terms like policymaking context and environments and multi-centric or polycentric policymaking, 
suggest that the policy process is well beyond the limits of policymaker understanding and control. And, you know, in a sense, each policy analyst can only do so much. So maybe that kind of literature prompts us to be pragmatic and to focus much more on feasibility even than the policy analysis texts uh, tend to do. But then you have the next chapter on insights from wider studies of power, knowledge, politics and policy, and they engage much more with the normative questions about whose knowledge counts and how to balance uh, scientific expert knowledge with deliberative forms of analytical research. And maybe that kind of discussion prompts us to reject pragmatism, because that really is another word for um, accepting the status quo and, and you know focusing on the art of the possible instead of trying to envisage a new kind of world. So in that kind of question, you know, those, those potential differences uh, should prompt us to reflect on the role of policy analysts. And I've kind of listed a, a series of questions that, you, that people might want to ask themselves when they engage in an analysis if they don't see it simply as a, a piece of technical work in a series of steps. Okay, so number one, is your primary role to serve individual clients? Or some notion of the public good. Now, most of the texts uh, wrestle with that one. You know, they, on the one hand, they talk about the need to answer the question asked by your client, but also that there's a wider professional duty to foster human dignity and not simply to do what people ask them or ask of them. Second, should you accentuate your role as an individual as part of a, a wider profession with particular methods and skills? Uh, if if the latter. Which policy analysis methods or techniques should you prioritize? Because you only have so much time, you know, and there's so many different things you could do. You know, the choice is a political one. Then uh, who should decide how to frame problems and set the limits on the feasibility of solutions? You know, so if policy analysts are quite powerful here, they, you know, they are essentially telling their audience uh, what's possible or not. And number five, what's the balance between the potential benefits of individual entrepreneurship, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, uh, versus a much more collective, co-productive process. And again, you might want to do both of those things, but you can you know, simply do everything. Uh, number six, what forms of knowledge should count in policy analysis? We're talking about a narrow sense of scientific evidence or a wider sense of knowledge amongst communities. Uh, number seven, to what extent should you gauge, gauge your own success as an analyst? So it could be in relation to the policy impact and outcomes you contribute to, or it could be about the inclusive ways in which you generate your analysis. Number eight, what does it mean to communicate policy analysis responsibly? So we've talked about that in previous uh, chapters about, you know, things are highly uncertain and there are many ways to interpret problems, you know. Is your role there to project certainty and, uh, you know, to persuade or is it to help people understand that the world is, is complicated? Number nine, should you provide a clear recommendation or re encourage reflection and iteration? Now, again, that ties in with the idea of being pragmatic because sometimes uh, providing a clear recommendation, you know, gives you credibility, whereas to to refuse to give recommendations might be seen as unhelpful by many clients. And number 10, should you seek to be pragmatic or to change the world? Now, I guess you might want both, but it's hard to envisage how you might pursue both at the same time. Okay, so that leads us on to these two different kind of archetypes. 
And so the blog post breaks uh, the roles of analysts into, you know, I, I think almost 10 different kinds, but really the, the, the chapter groups them into two main categories. The first is the pragmatic or professional client-oriented policy analyst. And so lots of text uh, give advice on how to do that. So Bar Bardax is this, the classic simple workable eight steps to present analysis to policymakers while subject to time and resource constraints. Uh, you know, and other ones, you know, Dan uses the, you know, uh, Woldavsky's famous phrase, art and craft, to suggest that, you know, science and rational methods only take us so far. Weimar and Vining you know, undercut Bardach with seven steps. Uh, but they have a similar focus on you know, professional development. Uh, they focus much more on economic techniques like cost-benefit analysis. But they still explore, you know, the, the kind of roles that you might you might take on. You know, from pretending to be objective to you know to sort of uh, pursuing a particular cause, and then Meltzer and Schwartz also focus on advice to clients, but they have much more of an emphasis on methods or techniques like service designs to encourage the co-design of policy analysis with clients. So you can see that as some attempt to combine the kind of um, pragmatic, efficient analysis analyst with uh, someone willing to engage in, in, in wider collaborative techniques. Okay, but then you have a kind of qualitatively different focus on, you know, uh, questioning, storytelling or, or decolonizing analysts. So Stone focuses on how people use storytelling and argumentation to define problems and solutions, you know, in the sense this is about power, uh, politics and power, it's not about objectivity and optimality. Baki uh, also analyzes the wider context in which people give and use advice and focuses on the emancipatory role of analysis to encourage analysts to challenge dominant social constructions of target populations and, and the problems that they allegedly face. Then we go further to texts that don't engage directly with policy analysis but are clearly uh, relevant. So Smith shows how the decolonization of research methods can inform the generation and use of knowledge. Then Doucet and Michener show how to apply these insights to the study of race, marginalized groups, and how to prioritize and incorporate as much knowledge from as many people as possible. Okay, so in other words, you know, you could sum up the traditional five-step approaches with the idea of pragmatism, professionalism, client orientation, and good communication. Whereas these other texts uh, give us a bit more. These are the questioning, storytelling, and decolonizing methods that sum up this critical challenge to narrow ways of thinking about analysis and narrow ways of thinking about knowledge. Now, in theory, analysts could, can, could perform multiple roles, uh, but the emphasis on these texts matters. You know, the more uh, space they give to pragmatism, method, uh, you know, um, client orientation, the less they tell you about marginalization and dominance, and, and that matters. Okay, so I wouldn't focus simply on a kind of bland conclusion that, you know, let, let's try and do all of these things. This is about making choices about how you prioritize your time and, and the role you prioritize in policy analysis. Hello there, my name is Paul Kearney and I am 
a professor of politics and public policy at the University of Stirling. Um, I am starting to forget my name and position, but okay, let's carry on. We're almost there. Chapter 10, how to be a policy entrepreneur. Now, let's start with the general meaning of policy entrepreneur. So it, it comes from the idea in business, you know, an entrepreneur is someone who makes an investment of resources in which they forgo short-term benefit in exchange for long-term financial returns. So there's no direct equivalent of politics, but um, uh, the return is, a, is about um, investing time, energy and money to seek some kind of political reward or, or policy reward. So the chapter compares different ways to think of entrepreneurship in policy analysis. So the first is to identify the attributes, skills and strategies that entrepreneurs need to succeed. And we'll talk about that in relation to Mintram. The second is to qualify the success of entrepreneurship, you know, just to say that, you know, most fail and their success depends more on their environments than their skills. So Mintram presents, I think, uh, one of the best descriptions of entrepreneurs in policymaking. And in his um, article, So You Want to Be a Policy Entrepreneur, he highlights the benefits of things like positive thinking, creativity, deliberation, leadership, and their role in policy change. So he focuses on three different things. The first is the attributes of an entrepreneur. So that includes their ambition, their social acuity, their credibility or authority, good track record, their sociability, or you know, so that you can empathize with others and form coalitions and their tenacity. And I think almost all discussions of entrepreneurs describe them as tenacious. So second uh, is about the kind of training that you can have to develop skills. So skills include uh, how to be a strategic thinker, how to build teams, how to collect evidence and use it strategically, how to make arguments or you know, so you use this phrase tactical argumentation to win supporters to your coalition how to engage many audiences by tailoring arguments to their beliefs, how to negotiate, how to network. Then he talks about strategies, you know, def uh, problem definitions or problem framings to tell a good story, using and expanding networks, working with uh, coalitions, leading by example, scaling up processes. And he concludes by saying this is tough work requiring courage, uh, but necessary for policy disruption. You know, if you want to change the world, be an entrepreneur. And that's really useful to tie in with the earlier discussions we had about the skills and training of policy analysts. You know, this really adds something to that sort of idea of a, a toolkit of things that, that people can develop. And I sort of get in on that. Uh, racket a little bit too. Oh, oh, okay, I wrote down racket as a joke. I don't mean I don't mean racket. I get in this this um, advice giving game too in an article on the three habits of successful entrepreneurs. You know, so the first one uh, would be don't focus on bombarding policymakers with evidence. You know that really ties in with the the policy analysis texts. You know, uh, this is about removing almost all information. Uh, telling a good story, grabbing your audience's interest and uh, do it in as few words as possible and hoping that the audience demands more. Number two, and this is a sort of uh, in relation to kingdom type discussions, by the time people pay attention to a problem, it's too late to produce a solution. So entrepreneurs have a technical and politically feasible solution ready 
for when a problem comes up. And the third piece of advice is when your environment changes, your strategy changes. So uh, entrepreneurs as individuals can have a limited influence in large and crowded political systems, but might have more success in smaller and less competitive venues. So this is about adapting to your environment. Now, the big qualifications are as follows. Uh, first, in business, most entrepreneurs fail, and it's the same in policy. Uh, so it's common to relate entrepreneurship to these stories of exceptional individuals and to invite people to learn from their success. But just looking at that logically, the logical conclusion is if there's a small group of exceptional individuals having this success, it stands to reason that most people will fail. And crucially, you can develop the exact same skills and strategies and adopt the same strategies and some will succeed while others will fail. So that's key to learning from entrepreneurs. The second is, even if they succeed, the explanation for the success comes more from their environments than their individual skills. Okay, so a, a lot of um, policy studies rely heavily on evolutionary approaches. They're talking about actors within environments, and it's the environments that provide most of the explanation. So I describe it as, you know, think of in individual entrepreneurship and the policymaking environment as on two sides of the same coin of explanation. But then imagine that the coin is rigged. A bit like in, um, let's call it, The Dark Knight Rises, you know, uh, Two-Face has this uh, rigged coin. So it always comes up environment. Okay, so, the, you know, the, the, the point would be uh, some entrepreneurs are successful because they're the most equipped to thrive within their environments, which stands to reason that it's their environments that set the parameters in which they can succeed. And people like, you know, Kingdon's phrase for that in the US is that policy entrepreneurs are like surfers waiting for the big wave. You know, so that is, they're not creating these opportunities, they're waiting to exploit them. Okay, now if you think about uh, things like that, it gives you a sense of, two different ways to think about this famous phrase, window of opportunity. You know, lots of people talk about exploiting windows of opportunity. Now, <clears throat> I think some people think of that as an opportunity to influence an individual when they're in the, the right frame of mind. Okay, so that could be you're in an informal meeting and you see your chance to be influential or you think, okay, if I can get this report done just at the right time and the right the right um, format, maybe I'll, maybe I'll catch someone on the right day. But most policy studies really talk about a window of opportunity as a series of events in political systems. You know, so that is much more complicated. We're not sure who the audience is. We're not sure how to have a route to influence. Uh, and we know that even if we have an audience, they're not necessarily at the centre of things. Okay. So if you imagine uh, policymaking and entrepreneurship within that wider system, we, you remember that most policymakers ignore most issues most of the time, and your analysis might be more about uh, encouraging some attention from some audiences rather than trying to interest them all. Now, maybe one of the most important things that comes out of Kingdon's study of entrepreneurs is that uh, the, the time it takes for an idea to become feasible can, end, can take anything from a while to a few years to 25 years. And that really puts a different spin on 
this idea of the impact of entrepreneurial policy analysis. You know, you think maybe I'll have a, maybe I'll exploit a window of opportunity tomorrow, or maybe I'll exploit one in 25 years. Now, the third one is uh, that uh, if we uh, identify inequalities of power within political systems, then we also identify inequalities in the success of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. Okay, so many studies highlight the story of tenacious individuals with, uh, you know, limited resources, but a burning desire to make a difference. Now, another way of describing what's going on is that most entrepreneurs have advantages because political resources are distributed profoundly unequally. You know, it's easier to invest a huge amount of resources for a long-term game if, if you have those resources in the first place, but many people do not. Okay, so for example, few people have the resources to run for elected office or to attend an elite university or find other ways to develop those kind of personal networks that relate to social background or their ability to use that credibility uh, to build a track record in a position of authority, you know, in government or science or, or be in, uh, you know, any equivalent position to invest resources now to secure future gains. Okay, only very few people have the ability to do that. You know, to, so to sum up, when focusing on entrepreneurial policy analysis, we should, I think, welcome that focus on encouraging the development of a suite of useful skills, but we should not expect equal access to that development of skills or the same payoff from entrepreneurial action. And so in, in, a, in a future chapter, we'll focus on, you know, using policy theories and, and analysis text to explore how far you would go to make an impact on policy. But we remember not to confuse this focus on individual impact with the assumption of equal opportunities for those individuals. Hello there, my name is Paul Kearney and I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. I've just had a coffee and a sweetie, so this is going to be a more upbeat one than usual. Note that uh, in the previous chapter there was a problem with the recording, so I've gone with the backup, the, the phone recording, so they'll sound a little bit different. Uh, this one is Chapter 11, Policy Analysis as Systems Thinking. So this chapter compares different ways to think about systems thinking and policy analysis. It's, it's quite a popular phrase, but we need to work out what exactly it is. Now, there are two uh, notional distinctions that I talk about. You know, so some focus on systems thinking as a practice. You know, avoid the unintended consequences of too narrow definitions of problems and processes. And the suggestion is if we engage in systems thinking effectively, we can understand systems well enough to control them, manage them, or influence them. Now, another type of systems thinking is to focus on uh, you know, their properties. You know, to suggest as as uh, you know, kind of complexity theories do in policy studies that policy emerges from complex systems in the absence of central government control. You know, so let's acknowledge uh, the limitations of individuals and governments properly accept our limitations and avoid the mechanistic language of policy levers which exaggerate human or government control. Uh, I suppose I'm going to ask you to see if you can see what the problem is there uh, in comparing those two. Uh, let's have a think about that as I describe 10 different versions of these systems thinking stories. Now, to be honest, I produced 10 
uh, partly facetiously, you know, just to show that uh, it's very difficult to know what people mean by systems thinking or what they mean by a system because there are so many different variants of, of what people mean. Okay, so let's go through the 10 and see which ones uh, seem, seem uh, feasible or relevant to us. Okay, now the first three are already find, found in the book. Okay, so the number one is what I've just described, a focus on complex policy-making systems in which systems thinking is about learning and adapting to the limits to policy-making control. You know, so if we go back to what our previous chapter, there's lots of advice on uh, what policymakers should do if they accept that they're operating within a complex system. Let's give up on the idea of control, accept error, you know, delegate and such. The number two is about complex policy problems, and Dunn in particular describes the interdependent nature of policy problems. And in that sense, systems thinking is about addressing policy problems holistically, you know, thinking about how lots of different types of policy problems connect with each other so that you don't uh, produce unintended consequences by dealing with one. Number three is this idea of complex policy mixes. So policy is actually a collection of lots of different policy instruments. And, um, you know, like in one of the classic scholars, Lindblom, famously described uh, the incremental accumulation of policy change. But this kind of approach is, suggests that the, the accumulation of policy or their effect is non-linear. So systems thinking is about anticipating the disproportionate effect of a new policy instrument. We don't know if it will have a maximal effect or a minimal effect. So this is the first three that we've already talked about. The next three are from a review that I did with uh, Dr. Fiona Monroe. And we were looking at how people conceptualize energy systems and whole systems thinking in particular. So the most popular discussion in that field is the idea of a socio-technical system. In that case, um, systems thinking is about identifying new technologies developed and protected in a niche while engaging with a more or less supportive social and political environment. So that approach is often used to identify what it would take to produce a radical transformation in energy systems and the political factors that would support it or undermine it. Then we talk about uh, how that might connect to socio-ecological systems. So that's a strong connection to the IED framework that we've already talked about, and you can you can find one or two blogs on in the on the web page as well under the thousand words and the 500 words and in that sense systems thinking is about identifying the conditions under which actors develop rules to foster trust and cooperation so remember we talked a little bit like that in terms of co-production in a previous chapter number six uh, discusses the use of systems as a metaphor now governments uh, are, are often quite keen to use the language, the metaphorical language of systems to indicate that they're aware of the interconnectedness of things. Uh, a bit like Douglas Adams would talk about with, um, you know, dirt gently. Yeah, everything's connected. So in that sense, systems thinking is about projecting the sense that policy and policymaking is complicated, but governments can still look like they're influential. So this is about performing systems thinking, if you like. Now, number seven is quite different. Uh, there, it taps into this story of how uh, we used to think about policy analysis and policy science as a kind of rational, technocratic, centralized process. 
So you can find the same kind of discussions in management and in uh, you know, fields like energy. There was much more in the olden days. There was this faith in science and rational management techniques to control the natural world for human benefit. So systems thinking was about the human ability to turn potential chaos into well-managed systems. Okay, now we've got three more. Uh, one is a more up-to-date version of that idea of, of control. Uh, so some systems thinkers have not given up on the idea that we can produce, if we can understand systems, we can produce a disproportionate impact on them. So system thinking is about the human ability to use a small shift in a system to produce a profound change in that system. Now, number nine is, is almost its polar opposite. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, we, people use the language of complexity to identify and embrace the limits to humanity, you know, the limits to human cognition, and to recognize that all human understandings of complex systems are limited to a small number of perspectives. So systems thinking is about developing the humility to accept that you have limited knowledge of the world. And last but not least, number 10, uh, this is about uh, systems thinking in research. And it's about rethinking the ways in which governments or research funders or researchers conduct policy relevant research on social behavior so that they're not too narrowly focused on a kind of really a narrow linear idea of cause and effect in things like, you know, social systems. Okay, so th those are your 10. So let's Let's reconsider the problems. The first and obvious one is uh, we, we have to ask ourselves constantly, what is systems thinking when people are talking about? So in particular, have a think about which, which of the 10 complement each other and which of the 10 contradict each other and see if you can tell. I think in some cases you can tell when they're at opposite ends of a spectrum. You know, one is about direct control, one is about no control. But think about if you can do that with all of them. The second problem is that systems thinking seems to be about two contradictory things. One is a high ability of us to understand and intervene to manage complex systems. The other one is the opposite. You know, the whole point of complexity theory and complex systems is to say that, you know, individuals do not understand or control and there is no you know, central authority uh, within these systems. And therefore, we need to adapt in very different ways to accept that we can't simply determine policy outcomes. And I think, you know, I, I actually prefer the latter and, and I find a little bit wacky that people talk about complex systems as if they can control them. But in that context, we know uh, I can a third additional problem, which is, is that if you look into a lot of studies of systems and systems thinking, a huge amount of work goes into restating over and over again the potential benefits of uh, complex systems research and systems thinking. And it leaves very little time for actually clarifying what people mean by systems thinking so that we can move on from potential to actual outputs. So in other words, it might be a useful approach to policy analysis and policy making, but only if you are clear and your audience is clear on what you mean how you use systems thinking to identify problems and what you think it tells you about the limits to government action. Hello there, my name is Paul Kearney. I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. 
And this is chapter 12. How much impact can you expect from your analysis? Okay, so we're almost there. You can probably tell by the kind of giddy nature of my voice now. Okay, so this chapter says that um, policy analysts cannot expect to influence policymakers routinely, even if they follow uh, policy analysis texts and the five steps to the letter. So it builds on other chapters. You know, if you go back to chapter three, this was about the old and new stories about analysts. You know, it used to be that they had a kind of captive audience at the centre of government. Now there are many of them competing with each other. You know, so they can't they can't uh, expect any kind of impact at all simply from following these steps. It also connects to wider research on things like the the impact of policy research. So Carol Weiss uh, is the kind of classic source of study of the role of research or evidence in, in policy making and evaluation. And, uh, you know, role can range from informing policymakers directly uh, or serving as a kind of long term enlightenment or simply to be used to bolster a case already made or or sometimes policymakers just perform the sense that they're using evidence without really uh, actually um, using it in a, in a meaningful way. Okay, so this chapter, you know, in that context, explores the extent to which analysts might want to go further to secure their proposed policy solutions if they can't expect much impact. Now, I should say, uh, most of the talks I give are about academics who tend to expect a limited, direct, short-term impact, or, or I certainly do. And so I talk about that a lot in uh, many different podcasts and recordings on the, the website. So again, look for the page that says EBPM and scroll down. And then look for the ANTSOG lectures, uh, many of which were recorded in audio and uh, PowerPoint. Okay, so they really go into uh, what academics could do if they could learn from policy studies about how to make an impact. So a lot of that is relevant. But probably policy analysts would want to go further. They, they, they can't rely on the kinds of long-term and mild impact that academics tend to seek, uh, particularly if analysts are seeking to change the world. Okay, so in that context, I start talking about this idea of a ladder of ethical engagement to have much more short-term impact. And the ladder comes from this... Um, metaphor that I would associate with Hieronymus Bosch. So he painted this thing called the Garden of Earthly Delights and and one part of it, uh, essentially there's a ladder going into someone's rear end. I couldn't honestly tell you why, but it just gives you this sense that the more you go up each rung, the closer you are getting to the kind of the dirty business of, of politics. You know, so it's a bit disgusting, but you know, it's worth looking up. Um, okay, so just keep that image in mind, you know, the safe option is at the bottom of the ladder. Now, uh, there's, you know, the, the safest option in terms of policy theories would be what we call, you know, step one. It's really wrong one, I suppose, uh, which is change levels of attention to issues, not minds. Now, this takes us back to the narrative policy framework uh, for which there's a separate podcast and 500 word series. And it suggests, at least my interpretation of this work, is that people use stories to, to make an impact on their audience. But the most impact is on audiences who are already predisposed to accept that story. So really, this is not changing hearts and minds. This is about uh, motivating people to act on the basis of reinforcing their beliefs. And it also ties to the 
discussion we had of Riker and her aesthetic about increasing the salience of one belief at the expense of another, rather than asking people to change their minds. Okay, so that's that's, that's a kind of reasonably challenging thing that seems realistic. Um, but then we've got more challenging options, uh, including step two. Now, this is based on advocacy coalition framework. And again, each of these concepts has its own podcast. But it, it suggests that people enter politics to turn their beliefs into policy. And if those policy issues are highly salient, then, then people, uh, they, they form coalitions with people who, who share their beliefs. They romanticize their own cause and they demonize their opponents. And this kind of activity extends to the use of evidence and policy analysis. Each coalition demands different evidence or interprets the same evidence differently to support their own cause. So in a sense, one coalition might accept your analysis wholeheartedly and the other might ignore it or reject it. So step two is to exploit that. Uh, engage only with actors and coalitions who share your beliefs. Now step three uh, is about uh, call that exercising power to limit debate and dominate policymaker attention. Now this ties to public uh, punctuated equilibrium theory, which talks about disproportionate information processing. In another, in other words, uh, policymakers can only pay attention to a small number of issues, and they have to ignore the rest. So they, it's disproportionate each time, disproportionately high to a small number, disproportionately low to most. Okay, so. Uh, that suggests higher levels of attention by many people might contribute to policy change, major policy change, while minim minimal attention might contribute to stability and um, a continuity or minor change. Now, I think a lot of researchers respond to that by thinking, okay, I, I better secure the highest possible attention for my issue to encourage debate and exhort policymakers to do the right thing given the evidence. Now, the alternative in step three is to take a different direction based on the idea that there is better value from low attention. Uh, so a lot of uh, these kinds of studies show how policy actors frame issues to limit external attention. If they can define a problem uh, successfully as having been solved, then they can describe it as, you know, only the technical details remain and only certain experts are, are um, relevant. So they can privilege attention to their evidence at the expense of other people. If so, they would be building on insights from studies of networks and policy communities, which are, you know, relationships between policymakers and influencers, which are about uh, gaining inclusion within networks by following the rules of the game. And if you're successful, you can insulate that process and, and exclude most other people. Okay. Now, step four is right up there at the business end, and it relates to social construction and policy design. So there's quite a few, there's, there's quite a few uh, po uh, posts and a, and a podcast on this one. And if you remember, that suggests that when they deal with salient issues, policymakers tend to exploit social stereotypes, either strategically or based on their own emotions. And when they exploit those stereotypes, they identify target populations as you know negatively and deserving of government punishment, or positively and deserving of government benefits. And the point of that is that some populations are powerful enough to exploit the rewards of that uh, stereotype or to challenge how they're portrayed, but, but most populations do not have the power to respond. 
And in fact, many social groups become alienated, disenchanted with politics because they are punished by governments and excluded from debate. Now, step four involves framing evidence to be consistent with the way that your audience thinks about target populations. One of the most effective ways to frame analysis may be to make it completely sympathetic to a client that, that uh, deals with negative stereotypes of target populations. Okay, now I should put this in sort of uh, metaphorical neon lights or flashing lights. I'm not suggesting for a second that you do any of those things. The main role of these discussions is to expose uh, the assumptions we make and the things that we're willing to do to make sure that the evidence wins the day in, in policy analysis, the lengths to which we're willing to go. Okay, so imagine you take from policy studies that the most effective way is to privilege research evidence or policy analysis evidence is to manipulate how people make choices, refuse to engage in debate with competitors, uh, frame issues to minimise attention, and to maximise the connection between your evidence and the, the rhetoric of cynical politicians. Now, that might help you gain the most attention and support for your policy analysis, but it may come at uh, too high a cost. Or it, it just exposes these stark ethical dilemmas re regarding the relationship between how you do policy analysis and how you think about democracy. Okay. So, put another way, the most effective strategies might be at the expense of democratic principles and participatory or co-produced policy making. So they, they prompt us to consider the extent to which we value research evidence uh, and to go, we, you know, go to uh, great lengths to do something about it. Or if we also prefer these more co-productive strategies to privilege participation over, you know, uh, expertise. Now, the I might just kind of exaggerate a little bit, but the final sentence says that this, this approach is a bit more honest and realistic than the common story you'll find within scientific circles, that scientific policy analysis is the antidote to populist or dysfunctional politics. Uh, there are many different antidotes to dysfunctional politics and the privileging of a narrow sense of scientific information is, is only one of them. Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. And this is the finale, Chapter 13, Combining Insights on Policy Analysis. So it's a very brief chapter that concludes by comparing uh, three different ways to understand policy analysis and see if we can put them together in a useful table. So the classic guides to policy analysis provide a five-step plan to identify a problem and recognise solutions. Policy process research identifies the ways in which uh, those activities are constrained or facilitated by policy-making environments. And critical policy analysis shows how to incorporate a commitment to challenging inequalities of power and the marginalisation of social groups. Okay, so we, we talked about in previous chapters, you know, what, what uh, Policy analysis students can learn about policymaking is that they need to pay serious attention to bounded rationality or policymaking psychology. So people engage emotionally with information. 
And any advice to keep analysis concise uh, is incomplete because that only focuses on cognitive load. We also focus on framing and persuasion to deal with the ways in which people you know, combine cognition and emotion to think about uh, information and problems. And the second lesson there is to adapt to policymaking complexity. Policymakers operate in an environment of which they have limited knowledge and even, even less control. So there's no all-powerful centre making policy from the top down. You can't simply provide an, uh, uh, an analysis to them and expect something to happen. We can also learn from critical policy analysis, critical uh, approaches to social science, which take seriously the, the role of policy analysis and research and scholarship and uh, challenging marginalisation uh, and inequalities, or at least reflecting on the extent to which policy analysts are actually challenging or reinforcing that marginalisation. So that was the focus on you know, the classic be a pragmatic policy analysis analyst or provide this continuous challenge to that enterprise. Okay, so table three tries to sort of sum up uh, those three different approaches. So in a, in a sense, it, on the, the first column, you have five-step analysis. Define a problem, identify solutions, use values to compare them, predict the outcome of each, make a recommendation. But hopefully we can incorporate these two other insights into that five-step process. Okay, so start with define a policy problem identified by your clients. Now, the text suggests that that is partly a technical exercise, but also a, a political act. Now, uh, insights from policy process also suggest that we need to incorporate a policymaker's willingness and ability to understand and solve that policy problem. Now, actually, most texts do incorporate that kind of thing. Then critical policy analysis takes us one step further to say, you know, identify the extent to which the problem definition fits into, you know, current uh, dominant ways to frame issues and consider if that framing is appropriate or if your role as an analyst is to challenge those dominant ways of thinking. Step two, identify technically and politically feasible solutions. Uh, now, one insight from policy process is that we need to take seriously the analysis of the existing policy mix, what is already being done and why, and what happens when you add a new policy instrument. Uh, now, again, policy analysis texts do talk about the extent to which a, a new policy is feasible uh, if it builds on others. And it is more politically feasible if you can build incrementally on policy rather than produce something radically different. Now, critical policy analysis is much more about how you identify those solutions. So encourage inclusive ways to generate knowledge and to generate many perspectives to inform the definition of and therefore the solution to those problems. Okay, so that is shifting from treating it as a technical exercise by analysts towards treating it as a collective uh, exercise by many people. Now, step three is use value-based criteria and political goals to compare solutions. Now, policy studies would uh, prompt us to identify the ways in which policy actors already cooperate or compete to define and rank values. Okay, so 
you know, post analysis texts sort of separate the, uh, the analyst from that process, whereas a study of policy process is about uh, the many different ways in which people are doing those kind of value judgments and uh, uh, ranking of preferences. Now again, critical policy analysis takes us a bit further uh, in a different direction to consider how to co-produce the rules that people use to decide what those values are and how to prioritise each value. Step four is predict the outcome of each feasible solution. Now I think, uh, I'm so used to thinking in policy studies that we simply don't know what the impact of a policy intervention would be because you never work on a blank page and it's very difficult to know if a new policy instrument will have a disproportionately high or disproportionately low effect. Okay, so it's very difficult to say or predict the outcome of each solution in, in the way that, that we expect uh, policy anal you know, analysis to do. The critical policy analysis takes us uh, uh, further to say, also focus on specifically on the disproportionate impact on marginalised groups. Now, some, some people like uh, Mintram do discuss the ways in which you can add gender and race analysis tools to you know, predicting the outcome of each solution. And finally, make a recommendation to your client. Uh, so I think this is where the, the main um, insight from policy studies is that those recommendations are completely, uh, well, maybe not quite use, useless, but incomplete without recommendations on how to adapt to complex policymaking systems. So for example, if there is no uh, all-powerful centre, how can you actually deliver the policy instrument you adopt? Or are you talking about how to manage or engage in networks or collaborate a lot across different levels? So a recommendation on a specific intervention is not useful unless you also make a recommendation about how to engage in the policy process to, to, to make it happen. With critical policy analysis, the focus is on co-producing your recommendations with stakeholders. Make sure you anticipate the reaction by many other people to your proposals and make sure you respect their reaction and build it into your proposal. Okay. So overall, the book focuses on uh, the problems that can arise when you divorce three different things. One is the scientific analysis of policy problems. You know, that's policy analysis. The second is the scientific study of policy making, which helps identify the limits to analysis and action. And the third is the study of the politics of choice to, de to determine whose knowledge counts as policy relevant and whose interests determine the final outcome. Okay, so you can divide that into descriptive and prescriptive elements. So emp empirically, it shows that policy analysis will be of limited value unless you incorporate policymaker psychology and policy making complexity into your analysis. I mean, easier said than done, but a necessary thing. Then normatively, it shows what policy analysis looks like when we move on from this technocratic idea of evidence-based policy making and analysis towards equally persuasive forms of engagement, summed up in terms like consensus seeking and co-production. Now that's easier said than done, but uh, you know we will never really uh, become you know, effective and ethical policy analysts unless we engage with these issues.